You are listening to the Ethics for Medics podcast with Ecce Dinucci and Christopher Bjerghese. Morning, Ecce. Morning, Christopher. Good to be back. <laughs> yes. So today we're going to talk about something that I have been insisting on and that you have been hesitating about the talking. <laughs> and I think it's because you are a philosopher and this is one of the very big topics, right? That's true. So we're going to talk about the difference between ontology and epistemology. And you're absolutely right that I've been hesitating for two reasons, actually, because I thought today we were going to talk about Donald Trump, who's been indicted <laughs> in federal court, first time in the history of America that a former president is. But uh, yes, so I'd love to talk about Donald Trump with you, but that's not what we're going to do. And um, no, and the second more serious reason for hesitating is, as you say, it's a very philosophical topic. And I think maybe one of the things we can be honest about to our listeners is that, you know, both of us, but especially me, obviously are sometimes worried that we go too philosophical uh, in this podcast, but also in general with the medical students. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, you'd agree, Christopher, that our dy dynamic between a medic and a philosopher is exactly, and the dialectic between those two subjects is exactly supposed to ensure that we don't just, you know, lose track of, uh, of healthcare and medical practice and, uh, and go off in, in weird philosophical distinctions. But I think it's a really important topic today because I actually use it a lot. Um, of course, I'm also philosophically interested, but I still think it's very good way to distinguish problems, cases, situations, um, and also on different levels between public health and the individual patient. But then shall I maybe do a very small philosophical intro to the distinction, and then you can uh, already take over and, and, and talk about how you use it in, in practice. So basically the idea of distinguishing between an ontological level and an epistemological level is actually at its core very simple. The ontological level is the level of existence. The epistemological level is the level of knowledge. And, um, and those two things are separate, at least in principle. Right? The existence of an external world, the existence of this round table between the two of us, that is independent of our perception. And, um, but obviously, the point of science is knowledge. Right? And um, so it's to find out how stuff works, find out whether or not something is the case, and things like that. So it's, uh, in fact, it's, it's foundational to science that at least in principle, we'd be able to distinguish between existence and knowledge. And that's the core of the distinction between ontology and epistemology. Ontology is about existence, epistemology is about knowledge. So to put it very simple, you can also say that ontology is about asking what something is, right? Exactly, right. While uh, epistemology is asking about how do we know that something is. Or that something works the way it does, uh, exactly, yes. So, um, so in a, in a certain, in, a, in another way, if that, if that helps the listeners, we could think about it. Epistemology is about us and our knowledge and perception and understanding of the world, uh, while ontology is about the world itself. But, but obviously we shouldn't be uh, blind to the fact that you know, we are part of the world's ontology. Right? So we use these concepts to try to you know, provide a further tool for analysis, but that distinction also contains the fact that we are part of the world ontology. We as knowers 
are part of the world's ontology. And, um, but yes, but the, I think in a way we shouldn't labor it more than, than that. I think we can just say that ontology is about existence. Epistemology is about knowledge. And then I think we can basically dedicate the rest of the episode to talking about how this helps healthcare and medical practice and you know our medical students navigate some of the complexities of their um, of their future careers yeah and i think i'll just provide one example from the from the clinic and again i'm not saying that it's you know providing you exactly tools on how to how to do but it still gives you a kind of idea in how to understand certain phenomena that's going on in the clinic if people come and tell they are depressed, so the phenomenon of depression, mm-hmm. first, if you start talking about it ontologically, I think it's worth uh, discussing, you know, what exactly is depression. For example, in a clinical point of view, you have certain criteria of what the depression is. However, this is from a very medical, clinical point of view. It's not a, from a psychological point of view. Mm-hmm. So psychologists could have a very different idea of what depression is. And when I'm sitting with a patient and maybe the patient or both of us have the idea or suspecting that the patient is depressed, it's also important to consider what kind of depression are we actually talking about. Mm -hmm. And one very concrete perspective of this is that in the clinical perspective, it doesn't really matter the reason why you are depressed. Mm -hmm. You have certain criteria. It's about that you have been sad, uh, have been moody for a period of time, that you have no interest and uh, or motivation, and you are tired or have no energy. That's like the core mm-hmm. criteria. But can I say? Yeah? Uh, uh, can I say just just one thing? I think maybe to, to to make a to make a start, I think we should first of all hold on to the following idea. So whether it's depression or another condition, the first step in applying the distinction between ontology and epistemology is just to hold on to the idea that there is a difference between you know, suffering from a certain condition, having depression, or for that matter, diabetes or cancer or whatever, and the healthcare system, the medical professional, the GP, identifying that you suffer from that condition. I think that's the basic idea, right? The ontology is whether or not you have the condition. The epistemology is whether or not your GP, Christopher, diagnoses, finds out, or even suspects, right? It doesn't have to be a full-on diagnosis. It can just be, you know, as as an intuition that you might, right? That's the epistemology. I just wanted to hold on to that very simple thing and, and, and then... And then we can, you know, go yeah, from it's, there. it's good. And it's also what you're saying is also referring to what you just said before that, you know, it's, it's you cannot really you can distinguish between ontology and epistemology, but they are nevertheless connected. So, again, in a clinical spe- perspective, if you don't consider the, the causality, the reason why you are sad or depressed, then you don't really have to, on an epistemological level, investigate or consider how to figure out why a person is depressed while from a psychological perspective if you consider the reason why you are set as a main part of whether you are actually depressed or not then you have to figure out as well how can i 
how can I know? I think it does make sense. I think it also points to something that we've discussed in previous episodes, namely that once you identify the difference between ontology and epistemology, the difference between existence and knowledge, obviously explanation, which is what you know science does, but explanation obviously is crucial also to diagnosis, so also to clinic and not just to research. Explanation is part of the epistemology, right? It's clearly not part of the ontology. And, um, and I mean, so it's, it's quite tempting here actually to, to, to look at different scenarios, right? Because on the one hand, you could say, look, it's really important to hold on to the difference in ontology and epistemology in this kind of cases. Maybe in fact, particularly important for, you know, difficult, complex cases like mental health, because, because we want to say, look, you know, only if you distinguish in ontology and epistemology, you can, for example, account for the fact that depression can go undiagnosed, right? Because there is no such thing as undiagnosed depression or, you know, a cancer that is found out too late if you don't have the distinction. The distinction makes that possible in the first place, right? Because you say, yes, that person had cancer, had diabetes, had depression, whatever, and we didn't find out. And they left the clinic without a diagnosis or we found out too late, stuff like that. So I'm just saying that it's that very distinction that allows for that kind of narrative, which is a, you know, which is a crucial narrative to the way our healthcare system works. But on the other end, I am also tempted, and I think maybe you know, that was one of, the, um, one of the points that you were making, the idea that you know, really actually in healthcare, it's all about epistemology, right? The ontology is, is irrelevant, right? Because it is all about you know, the relationship between doctor and patient, and it is about you know, explaining, finding out, diagnosing, and, and then therapy and cure and stuff like that. So, so all of, if you like, all of healthcare happens at the epistemological level, but without the ontological level, we cannot really capture some of the crucial dynamics, right? And, and also obviously, like we talked about when we did through the evidence and we did false positives and false negatives, let's not remember that, you know, it's not just about undiagnosed depression or cancer or diabetes or whatever. It's also about the other side of the coin, namely about, you know, maybe overdiagnosis or maybe about, you know, a false positive of thinking that someone has a condition that they don't have, right? So, I mean, I think it's great, you know, you're, you're much more of an expert of these things, but, but I guess, you know, it's great that there is much more focus on, on mental health and on, 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 on mental health diagnosis. But some people might also be worried that, you know, that now that's another thing we're overdiagnosing. And, and obviously, I mean, you know, some of your work has shown that there are, you know, there are screening programs that end up, you know, providing diagnoses that are either mistaken or anyway useless, if I can use that very simple word, right? And namely that they don't actually lead to anything. And I'm just saying again, I mean, I'm just actually now remaking the same point, so I'll stop in a second. But I'm just saying that both of these sides, the side of a condition going undiagnosed, whether it's a complex mental health condition like depression, or whether it's a more you know, dangerous but straightforward thing like diabetes or cancer, but also the other side, the false positive side, they are only possible in a framework in which we have both ontology and epistemology. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and I agree. And also, as you referred back to the truth and evidence, that's very much connected to ontology and epistemology, you can say. Yes, I mean, we could, we could almost test our listeners now because, uh, yes, because I guess, you know, in, in one very simple sense, 
if the listeners until now haven't gotten that connection right, then, you know, then we're doing something wrong or they need to listen to these episodes again. Because obviously in that, you know, in that conceptual framework, truth is the ontology and evidence is the epistemology. Very, very simple. Because here again, you could say, if you are fulfilling the criteria simply by the patient can answer yes to these questions, these criteria I told before, then strictly speaking from a clinical point of view, you are depressed, right? But those evidence in terms of answering these questions might not actually be the the truth if you could say so as in terms of a pathological depression so to be very concrete when i finished my phd a month ago afterwards i was very tired i was demotivated of doing more work for now so i actually had two of the three criteria for a depression um so can you just just because you know I'm the philosopher and I you know and I'm not very strong on details can you just remind me and the listener of the criteria so the criteria are being tired you have three overall key symptoms the first is sadness okay or low mood okay sad the other one is loss of interests or pleasure and the last one is fatigue or low energy and another key element in this is that you have had you must have had it most of the time for two weeks which is also an interesting thing because early on you have the criteria said you had to had it for two months okay and before and now it's had gone it was like weeks. i think it was even two years before so you know that's also an ontological distinguish here uh, distinguishment here right to say how long does it take before you actually have it because obviously if you only require it for two weeks then many more people are, by definition, by a clinical definition, depressed. But whether it's actually what most people intuitively would consider a, a true pathological depression, right? That's a different question. But um, I think I think you're doing a really good job, Christopher, with the case of, of mental health and depression, of challenging my very simple way of of applying ontology and epistemology because in a certain way you could say okay so if the ontological question is whether or not someone is depressed right let's remember that's the ontological question because the epistemological question is you know whether or not the patient or the doctor or the healthcare system detects the depression so actually the question of whether or not someone is depressed is the ontological question but now you're saying look but how we answer that question is by ticking these three boxes. So box one is whether or not the person, in fact, it's four boxes, right? So box one is whether or not the person is sad. Box two is whether or not the person is tired. The third tick is whether or not they are disinterested or have loss of interest, demotivated or whatever. And then the fourth one is whether or not this has been happening continuously most of the time for the last two weeks, and it used to be two months or two years, right? So those are the four conditions. Now, the weird thing is that those four conditions, you know, we made them up, but then those four conditions are the answer to the ontological question of whether or not one has depression. But how can that be, right? Is that not a mix of ontology and epistemology? And I think that's what you were saying about the fact that, well, the actual causal mechanisms you know, whether they are psychosocial or neurological or, or whatever, or, uh, or whatever the explanation is going to be, right, that underpin the condition. That's what we normally think of as being the ontology of an illness, right? And now you're saying, no, what, wait, actually the ontology of an illness is, you know, this criteria, 
But these criteria have nothing to do with the underpinning uh, psychological mechanisms. Uh, they are just a way of identifying those mechanisms. So the criteria are the epistemology, if you like, but they are the ones that, if you fulfill them, they answer the ontological question. Right? Okay. So I think, I think that's great. And, and I think it's, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm such a fan of this, of this podcast of ours because, because you, again, you know, really challenged from medical practice, you know, a philosophical distinction that was kind of neat when we started. And it didn't take us very long to show that, well, it isn't neat at all. We still need it because otherwise we cannot explain how things go undiagnosed and we cannot explain how there is mistakes in, uh, in detection and diagnosis. So that distinction we need, but that distinction is easily uh, challenged. And I think maybe we should do, the, we should do this. I mean, th the listener could do it on their own, but I think we should help the listener do the following exercise. I don't know if you agree, Christopher. Make no mistake, this has nothing to do, this problem that we've just identified, or let's call it not problem, but this complication, has nothing to do with depression being a mental health condition. I think, you know, a similar checklist can be done for a different kind of condition. And we're still going to be talking about the fact that, you know, whether or not the criteria are fulfilled is the answer to the ontological question. But the criteria themselves are epistemological criteria, if you like. Um, shall we try to do that? With yeah, I would like to use another case. Uh, okay. We'll just do it shortly. And just to f before, uh, when finishing this about depression, right? There are additional sub criteria as well. Just if any listeners out there are thinking, wait a minute, I'm there, there are more into it than just those yes. three criteria. There are, you know, subcategories of it as well. So, but this was just to point out the main. And what are the subcategories? Shall the we? Shall we just run them through? I mean, you I know, mean, we, this we is like a just for people to hear. Exactly. Yeah, it's, this it's, is just like referring to the Samaritans when talking about suicide, <laughs> right? So don't leave this podcast thinking you're depressed. Check no. the subcategories. I mean, because well. these were the key symptoms, and then there are additional symptoms like disturbed sleep, poor concentration, low self-confidence. Um, poor or increased appetite, suicidal thoughts, agitation or slowing off movements, guilt or self-blame. Mm. But uh, can you explain maybe to the listener, in fact yeah. also to the token philosopher on the podcast, uh, what is the relationship between the sort of main symptoms the, that we listed before and this sort of sub-symptoms? Uh, it mean, it, in, yeah. Yeah, it means ahead. that the, I think it's, you need to have two of the key symptoms. Okay. And then and the key uh, symptoms are they sad, were the tired, loss of interest yes, that we listed exactly. before. Okay. Yes. And if you have two of those, then if you have some additional of the others, then you will have either, you know, moderate, low, uh, or high uh, depression, right? Um, okay. So if depression. you've got all three of the key symptoms, the the doctor won't even look at the sub symptoms. But if you only have one or two, then they look at the sub symptoms. Is that the idea? No, I think you have to look at all of them. You know, at the end, you need you can have up to ten points, right? Okay. Three of the key symptoms and seven of the additional symptoms, but you need to have at least two of the key symptoms. I see. All right, right. So this is just more a complicated version, but nevertheless, you know, it's it's simply the same thing. And you can also say, which there has been criticized about it, is they are obviously connected. So if you are fatigued and you are also disturbed sleep, I mean, those two things are often connected. And self-confidence and the sadness is also 
difficult to distinguish and but I mean that doesn't really change the point we've just made that uh, you know you have these criteria in order to figure out how do I know that I'm depressed but at the same time these criteria are exactly what defines what is depression in a clinical yeah. setting and I think maybe you know maybe that's um, this is gonna this is gonna take us too far so 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 maybe we should just mention it and um, uh, and do it in another episode but I think this also points our focus to the concept of what it is what is a symptom is you know where what kind of special place in healthcare do symptoms have right are symptoms you know signs that allow the healthcare system to detect something uh, or are they you know part of the condition itself so again are they part of the ontology or part of the epistemology and the irony is that you know by talking about the symptoms for depression we've just kind of collapsed that distinction and um so that that makes it even more difficult then to have a you know to have a proper full analysis of of symptoms but um but i think this is i'm also a little bit out of my depth here so maybe we can leave the issue of of uh, of what symptoms are so let's uh, just uh, finish with another case yes. because uh, just shortly and and exactly when it comes to depression it's in within the psychiatry which for many years has been considered you know a field in which you can discuss these kind of topics right but it has been more considered obvious that the, that it's not for discussion within uh, somatic diseases right meaning physical diseases mm -hmm. however for example in one of my research papers in uh, in my phd i discussed this new diagnosis called uh, sarcopenia Mm -hmm. which is loss of muscle mass and function. And this is simply about that people, when they get older, lose muscle mass. Mm -hmm. That's not a surprise for most people, that older people are less strong than young people. Mm -hmm. This has been known for all time. But and now we just have a name for it. We have had a name for it for the last 30 years in okay. research because they wanted to... in physiology muscle physiology investigate well why do people lose muscle mass which is a super interesting question right but they managed and i say they that's the researchers in within this field to make it an official diagnosis in 2016 right so now sarcopenia loss of muscle mass is a disease today and it's something that a gp like you can diagnose yeah uh, but but on the other end it's like just the normal thing of life of becoming older exactly so it in losing muscle mass in in one way is simply an existential phenomenon that you will lose it no matter what but it's also a disease that it, one should try to avoid or cure if possible or at least treat and it also is a societal problem because then if if it's something we can fix, we should try to fix it in order to save money to and so on, right? And again, we are also back to what you asked about with the criteria, because how do we know that people have lost muscle mass? Well, we need to make some tests on it. But those same tests are also the criteria to get the diagnosis again. Can we start from a really simple thing for yeah. again for the philosopher in the room? But this time, <laughs> not because I'm a philosopher, just because I'm, I think, the older of the two of us. When does that start? 
it definitely starts in the in the 60s when you are in the 60s but it can start all all the time one re- main reason is because of age due to age but it can also be it's because you are simply you are inactive or you're not eating enough okay or you are sick for other reasons which again makes it an interesting case because obviously if you are physically inactive of course you will lose muscle mass why is this a disease mm. But that turns to the whole ontological discussion about what is a disease, how do we consider that a disease, right? But this was mainly to make the point that it's not only within psychology and psychiatry that we have these philosophical debates about what is actually diseases and how do we know. It's also something as physically, as concrete as the muscles in your... Yeah, and th- and thanks for, for pointing to the example, because that's exactly what we wanted to avoid. The, the fact that we chose as our first case for today, depression sort of left the impression in the listeners that this was something special about mental health. And as we said from the beginning, no, the problem is, you know, the definition of illness and disease in general, and how much of that sort of builds on the distinction between ontology and epistemology, and has got nothing to do in particular with mental health or depression. So... Um, I think uh, a somatic condition uh, is very helpful as a way of, of emphasizing that. But, but can, I, um, um, can I ask you to explain? I think, I think you were pointing out to the fact that basically, so, so it made a lot of sense from a, a research point of view, because, because we still you know, want to explain how that happens. It's a natural phenomenon, but you know, that's, that's what scientists are there for, to explain nature. So I can, I'm completely on board with the idea that we needed a classification for research purposes. Um, but then you said, oh, and, and but that research community managed in the last few years to make it into an actual uh, diagnosis or, um, or disease. Uh, and, um, and, and I'm not asking you how they managed to do that. I'm more interested in why. Is it, is it because there were you know, some, some treatments that then could be marketed? Is it because it was just like, you know, it's the next step when you've achieved something in research, then you want it to be also a diagnosis, a kind of career move, or what's going on? Yeah, it's a really good question. And we also investigated in our study about it. Of course, I cannot ex- give the explanation of every reason why, but I can point out some of those reasons that the researchers themselves have stated. So there can be, of course, other reasons as well. But these reasons I'm providing you now are based on the papers from the researchers themselves, right? And they they wanted the f- they considered the condition as that important that it had to become a diagnosis in order to fix it or prevent it. So you could, uh, you know, reduce uh, healthcare problems due to loss of muscle mass so, so, so the idea be something like oh you know uh, people that are entering their 60s should be more aware of the importance of you know of uh, healthy eating and exercising and stuff like that and and pointing out to loss of muscle uh, as a kind of actual condition is also a way of doing prevention at this more general level and making them even more aware 
Um, yeah. They could see in their investigations that there is a great association between loss of muscle mass, frailty, and all kinds of other diseases. So they, the reasoning was, okay, if we can avoid the loss of muscle mass, we can reduce the connections to other diseases. But they have also made it very clear that if they managed to make it into a diagnosis, the industry would be much more interested in making drugs and if they could were, could be interested in making drugs there would also be a chance of uh, curing it mm. that's and, the and positive way of saying that there's also a lot of financial interest in it also and because that's obvious right and, and no spoilers but <laughs> I, I i have a feeling that the next episode will uh, zoom in <laughs> on a, on a very famous current uh, local case of um of that kind of uh, of that kind of issue. So shall we maybe just say um, uh, tak for day and, and move <laughs> on to the next episode? Yes, we can reveal to the listeners that we tend to record um, two episodes, one after each other. You might be able to tell that from our voices or, or something like that. I don't know from our tone, but yes. So uh, I think this was really interesting, and I think this was this was one of the one of the better ones, if I can say, at almost like medicine challenging philosophy. Because it's like we started with these neat philosophical distinctions, and by the end of it, the distinction was uh, all over the place, and um, but but still necessary and still uh, useful to uh, to healthcare. So maybe that's uh, maybe actually that's a uh, that's a paradigmatic case for our ethics for medics podcast. Ciao. Ciao.